welcome back to a new year and a new episode here on the AW Morning Coffee podcast. Hope you're having a great morning and year so far. And uh, we are going to have a couple of updates. So we have been doing so far this year uh, a new series of book talks. So we have the Renaissance podcast where we have been talking with... Uh, Uh, Sean Ekman from Mythos and Logos about Ulysses. We talked about the Lord of the Rings with Adam Bishop from Unlimited Opinions. And we also talked with uh, GP, former GP and family doctor James Willis about The Matter with Things by Ian McGilchrist. Uh, so we have a mix so far of both modernist literature and then more kind of epic um uh, epic grand mythological literature with uh, Tolkien and then also some non-fiction with uh, brain hemispheres but also mixed into philosophy and um, metaphysics and uh, also to some extent uh, bigger cultural trends of the last 3,000 years. So all of those episodes are now on the Renaissance podcast and uh, we also had one little update yesterday about uh, afterthoughts from diving into Ulysses and James Joyce and uh, like the 18-1900s modernism and how this relates to the bigger tradition with medieval times and renaissance and the ancient uh, world as well. And then seeing to what extent modern modernity and, and modern literature can stand on its own feet, uh, which likely it, it depends on the writer because some writers are modernist writers with roots in the in the bigger foundation and some become kind of more like detached uh, modernist writers and then you run into some problems with the overall picture that they present of the world which then might be uh, in some ways insufficient and not helpful <laughs> for understanding yourself and the world and have some sense of orientation. So, um, but it's a big topic and it's, it's one of those big topics over the last few centuries with with these sweeps of of, uh, of cultural trends and then the, um, the trade-off with suddenly focusing a lot more on uh, detail, individual, uh, everyday life, um, kind of closer to, to your own experience, but then removing oneself from, from the bigger picture sometimes. So, But it's a big and complicated topic and it's great to dive into it sometimes. So those are the book talks and the, the beginning on, um, on the Renaissance podcast this year. And then we want to talk about the third volume from John Strickland, our f- historian friend in Seattle, Washington State. And uh, we got the book uh, for just about a week ago. So the third volume is called The Age of Utopia. And we are super uh, interested, inspired, uh, thoughtful, or it spurs a lot of thought reading these books because they present a very different perspective on also European history from the Greek Orthodox perspective, uh, especially then ever since the schism in 1054 and what happened then with the, the papacy as a cultural force in Europe and also then what it led to later with the Renaissance and the birth of the modern age and then also enlightenment and so on. So uh, we just want to say a few things that it's, if not necessary, it's very helpful to read, especially the first volume, because that's the first thousand years of Christendom. And then it shows you the Eastern view and a very, very different kind of 
idea about theology and the spiritual side of Christianity, which is in many ways essential to understand the critique from the Eastern Christendom towards the Western Christendom. Uh, and just in short, to, for a bit of an idea what it's about, it's, uh, it's more that you, you feel the religious inside of yourself rather than something that is far away, what they call the transcendent. So instead of thinking that the, the heavens and the divine is far, far, far away and we can never actually reach it, the Eastern view is more that it's inside of yourself and through contemplation and through prayer and through uh, focus inwards, you will discover what they will see then as the kingdom of, of, the, of the divine. And then uh, they focus more on participating in, the, in this, this experience and this inner, uh, as they would say, like the, the, the wisdom and, the, and this inner spiritual reality uh, in their view again, th and the energies as they call it. So then you can participate and then you can aim towards uh, uniting with it, not as two equal parts, but that you, you can become a little part of it through participating in, in the divine uh, forces or divine uh, also like the, the angelical beings, for example, those spiritual forces of just, for example, uh, in, in a simple sense, goodness or also love and also wisdom, for example. So it's important to know, understand or acknowledge this difference between seeing it inwards, like the imminent, as the, the Eastern would say, and then the more uh, far away uh, aspiration that will be more of the Western Christendom. Uh, there will also be a huge debate about how to present this issue. This, this is, in some sense, the East, what I just said, is the Eastern perspective on what happened after the, after the schism. So, and you can also add like the, 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 mystis, uh, the mystery is kind of the, the main thing in the Eastern. And then the, they will see the Western Christendom as more rational and then also more, more uh, cerebral and then trying to, capture and limit the divine through language constructs and that that would uh, make it smaller and then it will be a part of making the mistake of trying to put yourself above the divine and then define it and, and feel that you have in, in a sense kind of control over it. So uh, with that as a backdrop, uh, that creates a lot of differences from 1054 and the schism. So just to uh, read from the back, like the blurb on the back of the book. So the, the third volume again is called The Age of Utopia. So it says here, Continuing the epic of Christendom told in earlier volumes, the author explains how, between the Italian Renaissance of the 14th century and the Russian Revolution of the 20th, secular humanism displaced Christianity to become the source of modern culture. The result was some of the most illustrious music, science, philosophy, and literature ever produced. But the cultural reorientation from paradise to utopia, from an experience of the kingdom of heaven to one bound exclusively by this world, all but eradicated the traditional culture of the West, leaving it at the beginning of the 20th century without roots in anything transcendent. End of quote. So that's kind of the outline of the third volume, uh, what happens from the Renaissance until the beginning of the 20th century, the 1900s. And uh, just a few thoughts then on, especially the beginning with um, the Renaissance and the humanism. 
uh, it's a bit complicated to read sometimes because uh, we are very much in love with the Renaissance and the Florentine Renaissance. We lived in Florence for two years and we just uh, kind of <laughs> immersed in all the beauty and this extraordinary energy of, of kind of what feels like an, a broadening of your mind and enlightenment and, and joy of what is in the Florentine Renaissance. Uh, so, but all the same, you can read some of the critique that would be from the Eastern Greek Orthodox uh, perspective uh, and take something out of it. There are interesting points in it. So, and just then to take a few. So the idea is that the Renaissance would be seen then. So now I'm just, again, <laughs> presenting the view that like we're not necessarily agreeing with this, but just trying to, to, to understand the thinking here. That because the new papacy, what they call the papal reforms after the schism, uh, between the roughly 1050 to then 1300, uh, took a very negative turn, in part because this became a large political project of, of re-establishing Rome as a, an empire, basically, like a, a powerful city-state, uh, recreating the Roman Empire in a sense, and then you did it through kind of this cloak of being the like the, the papacy. So you can also see it how much they, they just reuse the structures from the Roman Empire in much of what this new papacy, uh, how they organized themselves as, an, as a power institution. And it was also a territorial power. They had the papal states and they had armies. So they became a very earthly power. And that also led to, uh, to some extent, um, uh, a more negative uh, version of the theology, also more used for political purposes. So you get this uh, darkness, the suffering, uh, the horribleness of the earthly life, the misery of the earthly condition, and some of these thoughts that life is just a, a horrible, dark uh, negative <laughs> suffering experience that we just have to endure and hopefully get some somewhere nice afterwards. So this is not there in the first thousand years of Christendom, but it, this comes largely then with the new papacy. And then the idea is that because of all this negativity, many people then started turning towards something else for just something uplifting and positive and uh, joyful, and inspiring and this is then where you get the humanists who pick up the greek mythology and then later the greek philosophy and then they start moving and orienting themselves more towards a classical age for something bright positive uplifting and helpful so this is kind of again then the first step that since so much of the theology in the papacy became then a negative one, a pessimistic one, then you got the reaction of a more positive outlook on the world through the classical age. And then here comes one of those interesting aspects about arts. So there is a point made in the book that superficial beauty is distracting from the deeper experience and from the deeper spiritual truth. So when you get Michelangelo or Raffaello, uh, you get this extraordinary beauty when you look at it, but then this uh, hesitation <laughs> from the orthodox perspective is that it 
the art was earlier supposed to just tap into or stimulate things inside of yourself, like a spiritual experience inside of yourself, and not being this this uh, radiant beauty that kind of just uh, that just sweeps <laughs> sweeps the feet under you and 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 make you just stand there and marvel at kind of the surface beauty. It was supposed to be more tapping into something that you had built and discovered inside of yourself. So there's, a, there's an idea of like you flattening the spiritual depth through surface beauty. And we've been talking about this topic with, with several friends and, and uh, acquaintances the last couple of weeks. And the reaction is very often like something like, hmm, well, there is a point to that. So sort of you should give, give uh, this critique its due that there might be something in it, that it could be distracting this sparkling superficial beauty um, there's also this idea that uh, so to the extent you would call this naturalism that it also depicts some of these figures that are supposed to be saintly or holy figures more as just normal people so for example then Virgin Mary becomes more just like a young beautiful girl with the baby and then Gradually, you remove the halo, you, you remove all these signs that there is something special, and maybe in some sense also something allegorical, allegorical or symbolic with the figure that represents more like kind of the, the force of, of spiritual birth and, and, and creation in a much larger sense that should be tapped into through the idea of like the Virgin Mary in this case. So, um, that is one of those things that stood most out from the, the treatment of the Renaissance. Then you also get the humanists. And there's something to say about humanism that it's kind of backward projected to be much more secular and rationalistic than they actually were. If you read Mirandola or Ficino and those other big figures, they are very much fully within the framework of theology, but they elevate the humans and the humanity uh, to, to some extent, becoming kind of more like equals to the angels. Uh, but it's still within the, the creation or kind of the, the, the divine created cosmos. But then afterwards, that bigger picture is, and the context is more removed, and then you just focus on that they said that the, the human is the the measure stick for everything and it's the center of the universe. Which again is true, but it's the center of the universe that was created by the divine in their view and their descriptions and writings in the beginning. So uh, that's just a little caveat about how we see humanism, the early humanism today. Uh, there is one thing to say about, just in terms of um, the how much the critique understood the theology at the time from the humanism, because there is something about redefining the theology and then critiquing it. Because if you wanna say that you wanna elevate humans to the levels of the angels, as for example, Mirandola says, then you are redefining the idea of what the angels are. So in the old theology, angelic forces are more just spiritual forces that are much bigger and beyond humanity. So for example, love or um, uh, or knowledge, streams of knowledge, the cherubim, or you have like the, 
like those for the for the territory like forces for territory and also the kind of the messengers or indications of something divine they are defined in the beginning as something that is beyond us so if you elevate the idea of the humans to be equal to the angels you are only redefining the old ideas of the angels to be something that is similar to what humans are uh, it's, in some sense, there is one component that is understandable because it's, it partly grows out of humans becoming more and more in control over our own environment and our knowledge is increasing. And then uh, there is no, more of the, of, of the world we live in is understood and controlled by ourselves. At least we think so. And then it's almost it's easy to see the temptation to then start lessening kind of these forces that are beyond us. But again, there will always be forces way beyond us and our understanding and our control. And that will still represent in the old version, the, the angels. So this move again, to try to conclude this like succinctly is that if you lessen or if you, if you raise the humans to the level of angels, you're only redefining and lessening the idea of the angels and pushing it outside of of your own worldview but they will still be there as forces so if you think of the universe and the cosmos it's kind of it's, it's an easy reminder that there are are so much we don't know and there's so enormous forces in the cosmos that we uh, are subjected to so um and it's also kind of then just remembering as last point like the idea of like spiritual forces uh, as something that that shapes things over lo longer spans of time okay so that was the renaissance the humanism and then you also tipped on into enlightenment which is easier to to kind of accept the whole critique that that's a, a big move towards rationalism and uh and restraining to some extent the outlook on the world to our own human, rational, intellectual domain, and then uh, further redefining what is supposed to be outside of it. Um, so it's, it, it's more clearly in the old Greek perspective, like a, a move of hubris as well. So uh, that's kind of the main points we wanted to make, uh, and also a part of our little defense of, of the Renaissance. I think... You could say to some extent you can see the the beginnings and the kind of the buds of things in the Renaissance uh, that later developed into things that are more easily acknowledged as a valid broad criticism, but it's not necessarily the Renaissance fault in itself. The Renaissance still stands out as a very balanced, mixed and inspiring period and uh, a joyful one and it could easily have gone more into the path of, of uh, the cosmology with, from the Divine Comedy, which, is, which, is, which has kind of both, both the old and the new joined together. It has all the admiration and, and joyfulness of the Greek mythology, but it also balances this, like the whole classical age, but it balances it with the, the, the new... Uh, the new uh, what should you call it, like the, the ideas and the theology that grew out in the 11-1200s in the monasteries in the University of Sorbonne in Paris. And Dante puts this all together in this kind of comprehensive overall 
uh, outlook and an experience of, of being and thinking. So the Renaissance could have kept the more like the, the Dante view of the world, but it instead it it kind of took the path more towards just focusing on the individual, on the human, and then uh, losing some of the balance and the little reminder that of humility and there's, there's still are things we don't understand, which is still seems crucial and necessary to remain or to, or to keep a balanced thinking. Okay, so that was 20 minutes. We had planned five. So, <laughs> uh, but how some of these thoughts were interesting. This is, this is trying to present just like the, some of the big questions that are very pertinent today and uh, trying to take in both what is good from the old and some of this new critique that we can see, uh, both from modernity, but also then from the Greek Orthodox view, uh, since they also reject modernity completely, and then see if we can find elements and, and uh, rediscover things and rebuild things and find a, like a stable, harmonious, positive, constructive, helpful, and joyful outlook on life and the world. So with that, if you made it so far, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for the company. Hope you're still having a great year. And again, happy new year. Happy 2022. And um, with that, see you again in another episode. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.